So we're going to be uh, jumping in. Last week we talked real practical about kind of dating and marriage and getting prepped for that if that's uh, in our future. Well, today I'm going to get more um, uh, kind of what the Bible has to say about sex and sexuality and marriage. And so to prepare for the message, I started to, of course, get through a bunch of uh, different commentaries, listen to a bunch of people's opinions and kind of uh, look at what that scripture has to say. But I also wanted to hear kind of a, a secular viewpoint is how do um, people, ex- especially those who are non-believers or would call themselves secularists, how do they view marriage and sex and sexuality? And we can kind of deduce from a lot of what's happening within culture, but I wanted to hear people explicitly spell it out. And so I'm watching different things, and I'll talk about some of the stuff that I learned, but one that really struck me and I found sad but interesting was a TED Talk that I came across. And this TED Talk was a woman who was talking about how marriage is really difficult, which, okay, yeah, marriage is hard. But the, one of the reasons why it's so hard is because people expect marriage to be monogamous, is you should only have sex with the person that you're married to. And this is really an outdated notion, is this is because we live in a modern society and we have progressed that this, this shouldn't be our view of marriage any longer. And so her, and there, I know there's other people who have come up with this, but they've come up with what they title as a monogamish marriage in which you are married, but you get the ability to be able to sleep with different people, but it's not too much, so where like you're semi-committed to one another, so that um, you don't have to uh, have these high expectations of being faithful to your spouse. You can go and have sexual adventures and then come home to your partner. And I looked at this and I was just like, oh, it makes me so sad for this lady because there's just so many things that are wrong with this, you know? And so I want us to be able to compare and contrast what does the scripture have to say and what is the underlying assumptions and outright teachings that um, culture is giving us about sex, sexuality, and marriage. And so right off the bat, I think just by watching that and by looking at culture, Now, they would say, uh, by and large, most people would say that marriage is a social convention. It is something that we, as humans, have made up. We came up with it over time. There's some benefits to it, and uh, it is just something that we have decided to do. It's kind of, um, it's very arbitrary. Like, uh, you, like, we decided that stoplights, for example, that green means go and red means stop. And we just decided that it was kind of arbitrary, but it's, that's how marriage is. It's just something that we decided to do as a culture because of its benefits, just like a traffic light has benefits, you know, the institution of marriage has benefits as well. And so the purpose, central purpose of marriage from this perspective is personal happiness, which makes sense because this is actually the core belief of most people in America, that the purpose of life is for you and I to be happy. And so, of course, marriage as a part of life would fall into that category of it's there to make me happy, which also gets us to a place in which um, when we're not happy and we're not being satisfied in a marriage, we can just simply get a divorce, which is where we see uh, this rise of no-fault divorce. Or we can define marriage however we want to as long as it makes the people happy. So we can combine different genders. We can combine even numbers of people. We can define it however we want as long as the people are happy that are involved because that's the purpose of marriage and that's the purpose of life. But if we contrast that with the biblical view of marriage and sex and sexuality, it's not something that we decide. It's something that is discovered. 
because they're not just, uh, they're not social conventions, but they are given to us by God as a gift, and they're supposed to be treated as such. It, it is a sacred thing in which God has given to us. And so I'm going to, today and, and probably in the coming weeks, I want to give you the five purposes of marriage and then also uh, of sex, which fits into that. And so the, the five categories are partnership, pleasure, procreation, prospering, and personal sanctification. It took me a lot of work to get all those to be peace, okay? <laughs> five Ps. That was, okay, you don't appreciate it. Fine. Today I'm only going to get to talk, to, uh, talk about a couple of them, um, but in the coming weeks we're going to talk about, so today we're going to talk about the context for sex and marriage and things like that, but we're going to get into, and so maybe this is motivation for you to be here in the coming weeks, is we're going to talk about why sex is supposed to be pleasurable, as if that needs to be a talk. Um, but not only is it supposed to be pleasurable, but within the context of marriage, it's actually a command to have sex and to have it a lot. That will get you back. Okay, so be here for the coming weeks in that. Um, so today we're going to talk about partnership, and we're going to look into Genesis, because this is really where marriage starts, and so I think we've got to go back to the beginning, and we see God's original intention with, uh, with marriage. And so in the first chapter of Genesis, God uh, creates the universe and everything in it, the, you know, stars, sun, moon, planets, animals, all that kind of stuff, and as he's creating, we see that uh, it starts with a, the, the singular God said. So it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we see that in every single circumstance, but then when he creates the pinnacle of creation, which is you and I, humanity, it comes, it, it, it changes. Here's what it says in Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so he goes from, or the scripture goes from, describing creation as God said in a singular, and now it moves to this plural, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And we see something that we, as Christians, we know to be true, but was all, it was true in the Old Testament as well, is that we worship a God, a creator God, who is monotheistic, and it is one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead. Now, this is a total, huge theological topic, which we're not going to delve into today, but we see that there are three persons in one, and they are in relationship for eternity past. And the reason why I tell you this is because it says in the Christian faith that relationships are primary, that when we are made in God's image, that we are made to be in relationship. In all other world religion and worldviews, uh, relationship is secondary, it's a byproduct. It's something that happens after creation, but it is primary. It is first. It is before the foundations of the world that relationships were important. Continues on Genesis 2.8. We're going to go to the next chapter. If you don't know Genesis 1 and 2, you can kind of skip back and forth to get uh, same story, different perspective. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make uh, a, a helper suitable for him. And so up until this point, uh, God says that all his creation is good. But then when he gets to creating Adam, he says it's not so good, in which some ladies say amen. But the reason why it's not good, or he doesn't say that it's good, is not because he messed up or there's something fundamentally wrong with men, uh, is because we were created in God's image, and God is relational, and therefore we need to be in relationships. And so it's not that the creation was messed up, it's just that it wasn't complete yet. 
So we go to verse 20, second half, it says, For Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had, taken out of man, and he brought her to the man." See, God's solution for uh, why it was not good uh, yet, why Adam's creation was not good yet, is because he needed to have a suitable helper. He needed a partner. He needed someone to be in relationship with. And this is very important. It's, it's almost a, it is a very simple account because you've got to imagine that this is supposed to be communicated to millions, billions of people over thousands of years. But theologically, it's rich because here's what it's saying. It's saying that Adam is created, and then Eve is created, and Eve is created in equal value and worth to Adam. See, Eve was made from Adam. It says that the rib uh, that the Lord God had taken from the man. So Eve was not a, a, a creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Eve was a creation out of man, not from the dirt, not from an animal, not out of nothing, but from man's side, which here's what this tells us. This tells us that she also, like Adam, is an image bearer, that she has a special relationship and special value just like Adam does with God. And so we see that she is equal in value, but also we see that she is very different because when God creates Adam or creates Eve from uh, Adam, she calls her woman. And this is supposed to signify that there is something very different about Eve, that she is physically different, that she is emotionally different, that she is spiritually different. And to, to a lot of us, um, well, let me just say this, and this is important, so don't miss this, is God did not create a mirror image of Adam, but he created a complementary complementary image of Adam, one that is equal in value and yet opposite from the man. And he did this for a number of reasons. One, procreation. We know this to be true. That's obvious. But it also is because they're, because they're different, they help shape one another, and they reflect different characteristics of God. See, God is multifaceted, and you need both man and woman to understand who God is because of all the characteristics that are involved. And you can see this. You can see that men and women are different. Um, kids notice this right away. I love kids because they haven't been inundated with all the cultural nuances and all that. They're just like, I'm here, and I just call the world like I see it, and here's how I see it. And so when I get home, uh, my kids treat me very different than they treat their mother. Like, I'll lay on the ground and they'll jump on me. Most of the time it's Sienna punching me in the stomach. Uh, she, you know, they're just, they're violent with me. And I like it. It's really fun. We wrestle. We have a good time. Um, I tickle them until they cry. It's great. We have so much fun. But does mom do that? No. Mom, but mom has a, a totally different role. Because when they're crying, they go, mom, right? Because mom's going to comfort them. I'm like, come on, kid, get up. Let's go. Like, quit being a pansy. You're two and a half already, you know? Like, let's go. Don't let your friends see you crying. Um, no, I don't say <laughs> Kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but it's because mom and dad are very different. And the difference is not just physiological. The difference is, is at their core. And we are already confronted just at the beginning of this story um, with a, a, a countercultural view. Is because throughout human history, uh, this would have been common knowledge. Of course, men and women are different. Gender is unique to each individual, uh, or is, is, uh, is biological, and gender roles are given to us when we are born, and they're, they're endowed by us by our creator. But now, 
our culture is the first in human history that has decided that gender is a, a socially constructed thing. It is something in which it doesn't actually exist. It's the culture that, um, that puts this label in, on top of you, and, yet, uh, and so therefore, all genders are pretty much the same. And so you can be on this fluid scale of gender depending on how you feel and, and what you think. And this is, a, this is the opposite view of what the scriptures say. See, culture wants to say that boys and girls are the same, and uh, apart from whatever physiological differences are, there is nothing different about the two. And yet scripture says, no, 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 that's not true at all. Our gender is a, is, is a gift from God in which male and female are made of special creations, both equal in value and yet totally different, reflecting who God is in different ways. And so they're not the same at their core. They're very different at the core. And they're going to play different roles and functions. Just like within the Trinity, we see uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although they're equal, they have different um, they have different jobs. They play different roles within the Godhead. And that's what male and female are supposed to be reflecting as well. Now, this isn't to say that we don't have confusion about our genders and our sexuality and things like that. In fact, I think that within the Christian worldview, this makes total sense, that we have confusion about our gender and our sexuality because this thing called sin enters into the world and it confuses every arena of our life. It puts everything upside down. And so, of course, nothing is going to go untouched in our life, including the basics of our gender and who we are and who we're attracted to. Everything has become corrupted within, within the, the, the fall. And so if that is something that you struggle with or you're trying to figure out, listen, um, we don't look at that as like, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing ever. We look at that as, yeah, welcome to the club in which all of us have stuff that we're struggling with. Our lives are turned upside down. Our lives are messy. We get it. Welcome. Come be a part of the losers club that we have created here, right? <laughs> that's okay. I get that. This is not a place in which we're going to be like, you're so screwed up. We can't. No, 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 no. We're all screwed up. We, we get this. And so the next part is the part in which um, I think, you know, I want to focus on tonight, and it's probably the reason why you, you like this series, uh, is in Genesis 2, 24, it says this, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, so one flesh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is referring to sex, of course. And what this, this word uh, in the original um, Hebrew is akad, and what it means is it's, it's two people who are fused together at their deepest levels. And so when a, a man and a woman come together, there's these two unique and, and, and yet equal parts that come together, and they fit together, and they make a whole. It's kind of like the only thing I could think of is when you have those uh, old school necklaces that were like the two hearts, you know, and it's like the friendship necklaces, you know, and they like come together and like, oh, it's so cute, we're friends, you know, it's like one of those. And that's kind of the image that we get, is it's these two distinct parts that come together that make a whole, man and woman together. And the, the uniting that happens at, uh, during sex is not just physical, and that's what this is trying to express, is it's not just a physical union that's taking place. It's far deeper than a physical union. Yes, there is a physical part of it, most definitely, but there is a spiritual and emotional connection that happens when that physical union uh, happens as well, because these two are becoming one entity. And so to understand like kind of the depths and, and what kind of context this should take place in, we have to step back a little bit and see a bigger biblical picture of what's happening. And so let me step back and, and see if I can explain, you know, 
how God created sex and, and where he wants it to be used. So if you go to the Old Testament, um, you hear a lot about God making these covenants. He makes covenants with different people, and that's not something that we're used to. We don't have covenants. It's a, it feels like a very archaic word. And so if you, uh, if you were to try to kind of summarize what a covenant is as far as the Old Testament context, it's God entering into a personal relationship with someone in which he intimately reveals things about him to that person. And they make a promise to one another to be faithful to each other. And so it's a very intimate relationship, but it's also a contractual agreement. And so it's legal and yet it's loving at the same time. And it's far more binding or enduring than any kind of emotional connection or emotional relationship. And it's also more loving because of that. And so uh, God understands humanity. And so he, he, makes, these, um, he makes these covenants because he, he realizes that we are we're emotionally driven. Uh, some of us more than others, but we're emotionally driven, in which our emotions sway us and sway our commitment levels and things like that. And so he understands that it's got to be more than just a contract of emotion when he enters into a contract or a covenant. It's got to be one that's also legally bonding, because it's much easier to be vulnerable to someone who has not only committed to you emotionally, but committed to you legally. And therefore, they have an obligation to you. They're not just simply going to walk away. And so God creates these covenants and these covenant relationships. And so if we were going to look at marriage from a biblical perspective, um, it is one man, one woman for a lifetime, and it's best described as a covenant relationship. And and this is where, um, in the relationship, your needs are more important than my needs, So sex becomes a way for us to express and celebrate and get to know one another in this covenant relationship. And this is very different than what our modern view of sex and marriage is because our modern view, I think, can be described, if this is a covenant relationship, a modern view would be a consumer relationship in which the relationship is about the fulfillment of my needs. Covenant is about your needs. Consumer is about my needs. And so sex becomes a way for me to fulfill my desires. See, sex is this natural desire that I have. It's a biological need. And so it's something that I go out and I can have, I can get. Just like the other desires uh, that we have, natural desires that we have, like when I'm hungry, um, I'm going to go out and grab something to eat. If I'm horny, I'm going to go out and grab something to whatever. Okay, so <laughs> it's, this, it's this natural desire that we have, and we look at it as just another, another consumer good that we have in our life. But here's the results of these two, the consumer versus the covenantal uh, relationship. When you are in a consumer relationship, it is always about performance and trying to keep them from leaving. You're constantly trying to impress that person. Because the way that consumer relationships work is you're going to give me what I need, and if you don't give me what I need, I'm going to go and find somebody else who can give me what I need. This is, this is the way consumer relationships um, play out. And so you better look good, you better make me happy, you better continue to try to impress me. But if you contrast that with a covenant relationship in which I'm staying no matter what, then you get to truly be yourself. You get to find security in that because you feel safe. You don't have to sell yourself. You don't have to try to impress them anymore because they have entered into a binding, loving relationship with you. 
Consumer relationships are dependent upon how I feel in the moment, which is a kind of a scary thought, is if you're in a consumer-type relationship, it is fully dependent on either your, your physiology or brain chemistry or past experiences that you have, and you become a slave to your emotions or to their emotions, depending on how you're feeling that day is if we're going to stay together or not. And yet a covenantal relationship is one that is free from uh, fleeting feelings. It's one that is full of promises and commitment that says, it's independent of how I feel on you know, any given day. We are going to be committed to one another. And so God, understanding covenant and understanding humanity, he decides that he's going to um, implement something called a covenant renewal ceremony. And so as Christians, we understand what this is, is we need reminding that we have made a commitment to Christ that our lives are devoted to him. And so what he does is, before he died on the cross, he implemented a covenant renewal ceremony called communion, in which we get together on a regular basis and we reflect and remember the sacrifice that Christ made and the commitment we have made to follow him. Because we need, right, we get sidetracked, we get busy, we got a lot of stuff going on, and we need reminders of the covenant that we have entered into. Well, this is exactly what God had in mind when he created sex, it's supposed to be in the covenant relationship, a part of renewing that covenant, a part of, of continuing to stay connected and continuing to, uh, continuing to remember the covenant, and, and it's also used as a bond for that covenant. And so sex inside a covenantal relationship, marriage, is giving you my body as a token of giving my whole life to you. It's full life disclosure with that other person, a renewal of the full life giving and commitment that we've made. And so what's happening here is I am, I am opening myself up physically. I am physically naked. I am fully exposed to you as a representation of what I'm doing with the rest of my life. The rest of my life is open to you. It is fully naked. You can have every part of it. My finances, my emotions, my future, my schedule, everything is open to you. And that's why I'm doing this physically as well. It's a token of what's happening with our entire life. And I hear people saying sometimes like, well, okay, I get that. But like, what about sex? within a relationship that is committed, although we haven't, you know, we're not married or anything like that, but we truly care for one another. See, if you believe that sex, if this is a good context for sex, then you still see sex as a consumer good. In fact, that's a really selfish view of sex because what you're saying is you're unwilling to give your entire life to that person and make a commitment, a life commitment to them, and so you would rather take than give. Instead of you giving all the arenas of your life, you just want to take one arena of theirs. And see, this is sexual disclosure without full life disclosure. C.S. Lewis has a great insight in this. He says this, he says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of unions which were intended to go along with it and make that total union. It's, it's me taking, it's me being a consumer, it's me being selfish, saying, I want this area of your life, but I'm not willing to get every area of my life to you. It's I want you to make me happy, but I'm not willing to, to give my entire being to you. See, sex becomes then a way in which we can feel good about ourselves. 
It's a way that we feel wanted by people. It's a way that we can feel loved. It's a way that we can feel adored and powerful, maybe even prideful. At the end of the day, when we only give that one type of commitment, the physical, without the others, it's just a selfish act. And see, statistics show that a vast majority of people um, in America, they continue to have sex in order to keep the relationship together. That's really sad to me, is there's no bond, there's no commitment, only sex. I, uh, I do premarital counseling with a lot of people, and, um, and over the years, I've, I've kind of had this standard in which I am not going to marry you if you are living together or sleeping together. It's just a standard. It's like, look, I, I cannot in good conscience marry you, or if it's unbeliever and a believer together, I can't marry you, and so I give them a challenge. I'll say, look, um, if you want me to marry you, then you have to stop sleeping together and move out. And some people just say, like, screw you, I'm over that, I'll go find another pastor. And I'm like, God bless you. And so they go on their way. But other people go, look, yes, you're right, we needed that challenge, we're going to do it. And here's the craziest part, and this has happened to me so many times, is I will meet with them, and after a few months of them living apart and the sex being taken out of the equation, all these things start to emerge in the relationship. And then which they're going, because here's what happens, is is they no longer have sex to cover up what's actually happening in the relationship. And because that element is taken out, they have to start dealing with the stuff that they've been suppressing. And oftentimes, these people will just be like, I can't stand them. It's the craziest thing. I can't stand them. Now, hopefully they work through it and they deal with it and they get on track and they start to deal with the stuff that they've been suppressing with sex. But it's a great challenge because sex is supposed to be within this context. And when you, when you take it out, you start to see yourselves for who you truly are and the relationship for what it truly is. See, the consequences of using sex outside of this covenantal relationship of marriage is that just, it's the same as using any other gift that God has given us. See, God gives us these incredible gifts, incredible gifts. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks of what an incredible gift sex is. And, and don't for a minute think that uh, Christians are prudes about sex. In fact, I will prove to you that Christians have better sex than anybody else. Just wait and see how that works out. Okay. But here's the thing. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get weird. So you guys got weird. I'm actually going to have a testimony up here uh, next week. Amy's going to come on up, and uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I had to, like, make Amy embarrassed at least one time tonight. Every time we do the sex series, it's just like, woo. Anyway, um, where was I? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, yikes. Um... Anyway, so what was I saying? Oh, yeah, <clears throat> sex outside of marriage. So sex outside of marriage, So okay, let me back up a little bit, is I believe that we have this covenant apparatus where we can enter into a relationship and we can make covenants with one another. And marriage is <clears throat> the ultimate example of this. And the <clears throat> Excuse me. And the problem with having sex outside of marriage is we begin to break down this covenantal apparatus that we have in order to connect with somebody. And so the more that we have sex outside of marriage, the more we begin to, um, we begin to break this apparatus. Because it's just like sin. Sin in any area of your life will end in some sort of death. 
I guarantee it. This is what the Bible says is that sin will end up in some kind of death. Something will die as a consequence of us misusing a good gift that God has given us. So it might be a relationship that dies. It might be finances that die. It might be something emotional. It might even be physical death itself. But when we misuse God's good gifts and we use them how we want to instead of how he has instructed us, something will die in the end. And oftentimes, um, when we have sex outside of marriage, it's this ability to be able to connect with our partner that begins to erode. We begin to lose this ability. The more that we use this, this good gift outside of its intended um, context, we lose the ability to be able to connect with our spouse one day. We lose the ability to be able to connect with the person whom we want to share life with because we've already given it away too much. It's broken. Now, a lot of us are sitting here and we're going, look, Cody, um, in fact, the large majority of us have already made these mistakes. And so let me just talk about that for a moment because I don't want you to walk out of here hopeless and be like, man, I've already screwed up. What do you, I mean, am I, is my marriage going to be a disaster one day? What's the deal? Well, let me tell you a couple things. One, if you are currently still living in this fashion in which you're using this good gift outside of its context, let me tell you what Jesus would say. Jesus would say, um, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. What he's saying in, in this, what he's saying is you have to be, you have to be so serious and aggressive with these areas of your life that are in rebellion that it's as if you would be willing to gouge out your eye to stop it. He's trying to get our attention here. He's trying to say, if you are having sex as a consumer good outside of marriage, or you're looking at pornography or whatever, we'll talk about that in the coming weeks as well, you have to stop immediately because you are destroying yourself and you're destroying your future relationships. And so you have to do whatever it's going to take. I don't care if you've got to take your laptop and throw it out. If you have to get rid of your cell phone, if you have to break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend. I tell people all the time, they come to me and they go, Cody, um, so here's what's going on. What do you think I do? And I go, look, just break up with them. I'm like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Yes, break up with them. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not emotional about it. I've never met them before. But no, seriously, that's how serious we have to be about this is we have to take hold of these arenas of our life and we have, to, uh, we have to flee, as we talked about last week, from sexual immorality. And then we have to get on our knees daily and ask for God's provision and his power over our life. Lord, I know today is going to be a struggle. I know that I want to be codependent. I know that I want to be looking at the stuff on my computer. I know that I want to fall into this temptation, but I need your strength today. The other is, once we have made that decision that we are going to commit to purity in our life, then we have to learn to accept God's forgiveness and healing. Is yes, a lot of us have made some mistakes. And so the first thing that we have to do is we have to confess with our mouths to God, Lord, I have made mistakes in my life. And in fact, here is the list of stupid things that I've done and I need your forgiveness. And the scripture says that he will. He will forgive us of those things. And then here's the best part is, because of his forgiveness, we get to walk away from this, all these past mistakes without the regret and, and with full forgiveness from the creator God. I used to struggle with this a lot when I was growing up and I had made my mistakes. I used to tell my dad all the time, man, I'm like beating myself up and I'm struggling and I still wrestle with some of the past mistakes that I've made. And, and my dad said, you know, you have, to, you have to accept this forgiveness, not just for yourself, but because every time you try to take all that burden back on you, you're saying, Jesus, your sacrifice wasn't enough. I need to take it all back on my shoulders. 
He's saying that's an offense to God when you won't forgive yourself. Because it's saying that the cross wasn't great enough to overcome your sin. And I started to be able to heal from some of the past mistakes that I've made and be able to accept that forgiveness. And the other part is once you have um, asked for forgiveness and you've received it, you then need to start the process of healing. Is whenever this, this, this guilt and the shame starts to pop up into your life, you say, no, 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 no. That's been forgiven. That's done. I'm not dealing with that anymore. That was put on the cross, and it's over now. And yes, it's going to take some time. And yes, you're going to have to make a full life commitment to this, a full life commitment to healing and to purity. But here is the, the incredible result that could happen, is one day you get to, and this is really, um, I think, a, a, a time in your life in which you get to drastically change where you're going to end up. Because in your 20s and in early 30s and late teens, these are the moments of your life in which you are drastically going to determine where you end up in life. You can either become the person whom your future spouse wants to marry. You get to become... So one of the things that really convicted me as I was uh, growing up and, and I was trying to think of who I wanted to become was um, I want to become the person that I expect my future spouse to be. And that became a motivating force for me. And so you could decide, am I going to become that person in which, yeah, I've made my mistakes, but I've recovered from them, I, I've, I've accepted the forgiveness, I've, I've, I've healed, and I have turned away from that lifestyle, or will I just continue to uh, be the person that I've always been? And see, it may not seem like a big deal to you now, but as a pastor who has got to see the other side of this, in which I see families breaking up all the time because they didn't deal with their stuff back then, and they're continuing to bring it in their relationship, and then their kids feel the consequences of it, it's devastating. And so we get the opportunity right now as young people to decide, okay, what kind of person am I going to be? Am I going to per be a person who pursues purity and trusts God with these areas of my life, or will I continue to be in charge? And, and, and we get to paint this picture of what our future is going to look like. And so my, my prayer for us as a group is to be people who live differently than the rest of culture, that they look at our lives and they say, what is the motivating force for them? What is their deal? Why is their life so different than mine? And we get to be people who say, my life is different because of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are and, and the good gifts that you've given us. Lord God, I want to make sure that I emphasize that marriage and sex and gender and sexuality are incredible gifts that you have given us, some of the best gifts that we have. And yet, Lord, just like all the other good gifts in our life, we abuse them, we misuse them, we decide that we're going to do uh, what we think is best instead of what you have designed them for. And so, Lord God, some of us need to repent, some of us need to turn away from some lifestyle issues that we have, some decisions that we've made, some relationships that we've entered into, and we need to commit to purity, we need to commit to, to following you and using the good gifts that you have given us um, the way that you have uh, instructed. And so, some of us we need to make that change. But others of us, we just need to be able to accept the forgiveness that you have given us. Is yes, we have passed, and yes, we have made mistakes, and, and, and we don't like to think about those things. And the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to worry about those. We don't have to feel that shame and that guilt because your sacrifice was, was, was big enough. It was great enough to be able to, to handle whatever we've done. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would walk out of here and we would feel that forgiveness. We would feel that assurance that you, of your love, Lord God. Lord, we, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. In your name we pray. Amen.